0: Support comes from Empower Missouri's Week of Action with in-person and virtual advocacy training for affordable housing, criminal justice, and food security initiatives, March 25th through 28th. Registration at empowermissouri.org WOA.
1: For some Missouri Republicans, the 2023 legislative session was both frustrating and incomplete. That's because lawmakers didn't finish work on a number of priorities including a proposed ballot item that would make constitutional amendments more difficult to pass. On the latest episode of Politically Speaking, State Representative Bill Hardwick gives his view of the 2023 legislative session and a preview of the 2024 election. Let's hit the music.
0: This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics.
1: My promise to St. Louis was that I would do the absolute most for each and every person, starting with those who have the very least.
2: What I wanted to do was look and see what other states are doing. We have to be willing. To change those laws, that they are balanced and they affect everybody equally.
1: As somebody that grew up in the St. Louis area, in North St. Louis County, I didn't know any lawyers growing up. we
0: got to find long-term solutions to make government better, but also to be able to provide services to people.
1: I don't want to leave that federal money that we've been leaving all these years on the table.
2: We need to be spending this money to take care of Missourians.
0: I thought we accomplished a lot this year, but a lot more needs to be done.
1: And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio's political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me in Jefferson City, she covers all things state government and state politics for St. Louis Public Radio.
2: Sarah Kellogg.
1: And joining us for the third time, he is the representative for Missouri's 121st House District, which takes in uh, Pulaski County, and particularly Fort Leonard Wood. Our guest today is... Bill Hardwick. We have a lot to talk about. Session has been over for, what, three years now? Four years?
2: (laughs) Feels like it. A couple weeks, maybe?
1: I've covered a lot of last week of sessions, and I've never covered a last week where every day people were out by 6.30 and that I could go enjoy myself without any guilt any of the days, which was great for me, but probably not great for you. What, what, what happened the last week of session?
0: Well, I think it's true that it kind of defied our expectations for how May wraps up. The new freshman reps came in. And a lot of us said, hey, in May, get ready. We'll be going till midnight. We'll be coming back early, round the clock, fast and furious. And the last couple of weeks, it seems like we did have a couple of early days that kind of surprised everybody. Um, I'll take the optimistic viewpoint about it, that um, that it wasn't totally bad from my point of view. If your point of view is there's some bills that necessarily weren't necessarily good for Missouri that didn't pass, then that's a positive thing. If you think that it should be really really hard to pass legislation, and it should really require you to get a coalition on board, a diverse coalition of conservatives, of moderates, of progressives, and it should be difficult, then uh, then maybe that that's a positive thing. I don't, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff that I wanted to pass, and that was a personal political priority or policy priority of mine or my constituents or of my colleagues that didn't pass, and that was disappointing. But um, that doesn't mean that – a lot of people say it's dysfunctional. I think it, it may be. It may be because personalities, there's more friction. But there, it should be difficult. And um, And I'd rather have a process where more people can put the brakes on and there are more filters and difficulty passing legislation than to make it really easy for any idea any of us have to become law and binding on over 6 million people.
2: You know, it's possible – the Republicans are starting to run out of major policy priorities and the major aspect of the legislative session is becoming how the budget is constructed. What do you think kind of on that statement? Oh, question? that's an interesting point
0: that the um that the governing coalition, the rising coalition uh, that put the Republicans in the majority was this co- coalition based on maybe social issues, abortion, traditional tax issues, kind um, of traditional Republican issues that 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 contributed with um, you know, the last 20 years post 9-11 the entrance of Donald Trump into the political scene made Missouri really red. And so that's so these issues that are binding give you these big coalitions, and then Republicans take care of those things, right? They've taken care of largely the main things that they've ran on. So now the Republican Party is trying to figure out where do you go from here? And how do you have cohering principles that give you a majority of the ledger in, in the more, most districts and that kind of help you define what conservatism and republicanism is going forward? And that's a real challenge. And I think that's what you're seeing. You're seeing different Republican leaders and thought leaders and the conservative movement and elected officials have different ideas about the direction that they think the Republican Party ought to go. Um, and I think it's OK. I have my ideas about it. And I think different people do. And as we go into this next election cycle, other people will merge with their ideas, too. Give me the, the second part of your question again.
2: Um, do you feel like it's it maybe the major aspect now? It seems like the budget, it's how the budget is. Yeah. And,
0: and sorry. And we saw that the exact same dynamic bleed over in the budget with the DEI amendments. And, you know, there's a viewpoint that you should legislate to the budget, the budget should be political. I actually take the opposite approach. I think that the budget is a legislation. I think that its process is inherently political. That's one reason why appropriations are not justiciable at the federal level, because inherently political. And so I think that that's what we're, that's part of our identity crisis. Is the Republican Party a party that's just going to, you know, take more and more federal money, kind of grow the budget every year? Is it, you know, going back to what somebody like a Ronald reagan or ron paul from the 80s would say that we need to have less spending less government control less obligations so we kind of have that that difficulty right being the governing party it's easier when you're the um the party out of power as republicans were and and i want to remind them that republicans weren't the majority in missouri for a long time that no um coalition is permanent no placeholder of political power is um is, is forever there's entropy in politics um, but yeah, when you're out of power, you'd say, "Hey, less budget, less budget. You shouldn't fund that." And then you, you you become the governing party, and now you think, "Okay, what do I cut? This federal money's on the table. I have ability to send money to build a library or a hospital or a bridge or to fund these services." Okay, so what do we do with that? And that that's a real question mark whether or not we how we how we deal with the budget, federal dollars, what fiscal conservative equals. Um, Those are those are things that um, that you're seeing emerge, and you're seeing as we're going actually not to segue into election cycles, you go into election cycle, you see people who are running for statewide office, for state senator, for state rep, start to say what they think the budget process ought to look like. But it's okay, the budget should be a fight, just like any other legislative fight. It should be hard to get something in the budget. It should um, require you to go talk to people. And and if you're on the boot hill, you should have to go to somebody in Kansas City and say, well, here's what's important to me, what's your priority? Let's see what we can agree on. It's okay that, that that's a little bit of a messy process. It's okay that there's wheeling and dealing involved.
2: You know, to go back to like kind of that last week, Jason said, you know, it, you know, the House did a lot, was working passing bills and the Senate was pretty much at a standstill that whole yes. week, very, you know, getting some yeah. things passed, but a lot of times, a lot of filibustering. And that led to, I think, again, just kind of continued friction between the House and the Senate on how they work. Why do you think there continues to be friction between the chambers?
0: Uh, I think that there are political, ideological and agenda battle lines being drawn. Over gaming issues, one of them, right? Sports betting, VLTs, grey machines, torch machines. Over, um, over some social issues, over, you know, even over education. You know, there's now. It used to be that um, in many, you know, in many states, school choice is the standard Republican position. In Missouri, there were there were different versions, right? It broke down to two camps really on education. Then it was three. Now it's four. Um, those things just kind of get more complicated. And and uh, as people are kind of asserting what they think is important to them, they're running into people that have the opposite opinion. And that is the pitfall of sometimes having a supermajority. Um, there are pros and cons to having such a big majority. And that's also one of the um, consequences of having a Senate that has so few senators, relatively just 34, right? That's, there's there's such power invested in each one of them just in that aspect alone. But then having a standing filibuster that is very carefully protected by each senator. And so that gives each senator the ability to really put the brakes on anything, any legislation. and um, and you know, there's some some of my colleagues in the house say, okay, uh, time to time to PQ, time to weaken the filibuster, time to make the Senate a little more populous, like the House. You know, or, you know, or, you know, kind of um, expressive of the people, like the House. But I understand why senators want to retain that, and I think that's important too. There's so much stuff that I actually disagree with that don't that I don't want to become law, and there's so many things that my constituents don't want to become law either. So again, like I'll take a system where um, where you ha- where it's really hard, you have to go negotiate. And you have to um, horse trade and play cards a little bit in order to, you know, figuratively speaking, in order to get your your legislation passed.
1: So let's move on to a couple of, of big issues that did pass and one which we'll talk about after the break that did not pass. The thing that Republicans would say was the biggest policy victory was legislation that would bar transgender minors from accessing puberty blockers or hormone therapy. It would also bar the state from paying for adult transgender people to get gender affirming care uh, through Medicaid or if they're incarcerated as well. Why do you think that this bill became such a big priority this year?
0: It's been a growing issue, just like we were talking about earlier. Um, you know, abortion, guns are issues that sort of were ascendant for Republicans who went rural Missouri. But, you know, I've gone back to my district I've gone back to fairs and um, meetings and stuff like that. And people bring this issue up as it became more in the spotlight with um, transgender athletes uh, playing at the collegiate level with, um, you know, just kind of the issue became more forefront culturally, more in the media, more on TV and movies. It became more um, aware in people's minds and people brought it up more. And I think that's true. So I think there's a You know, you could argue And maybe your argument is that a little bit of it's manufactured for political purposes. But there is an organic response for people kind of out in the state who bring this issue up. And I've I've heard that personally.
1: I've even talked to Republicans about this. They feel that one of the reasons why this issue came to the forefront is conservative media outlets and social conservative social media influencers have been amplifying a lot of negative coverage about gender affirming care for minors and just transgender people in general. And then Republican constituents see this, and then they go to Republican legislators and say, "You got to do something." I mean, is that is that is that dynamic too simplistic, yeah, or do you, is I've that basically that. what hap- is that basically what happened here?
0: No, I, th- I think that's true. I think there's a dynamic, and 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 partly that's the way a dynamic ought to be. Maybe not necessarily you agree substantively on this issue, or one would agree, but like partly the dynamic should be: you go back to your district, they say do something about this issue, you come back to the legislature with an impetus impetus to act on behalf of your constituents. I think I'll add a little bit to the analysis though, that um, often re- conservative Republicans are called reactionary and, and Biden came into the White House. And so there's a new president. And so that new president brought a series of new federal initiatives and fe- federal policies for the military at the federal level in terms of um, visibility of the issue. And so, and so in part, I think that there are um, rural Missourians who are reacting also to the new federal policies. And so it just became an issue that was more visible that was more top of mind for people in terms of social issues and so um, and so a lot of people went back to their districts and I definitely I could see that anecdotally you know if you go out and you' you're talking to folks you talk about the budget you talk about roads and people don't seem like that's an issue that's really animating whereas 20 30 years ago that was kind of a standard issue for a politician but when you talk about um, transgender care tran- transitioning children, you talk about transgender athletes and what the rules should be, there's an animation in voters, at least in, at least in district that I represent and in the surrounding counties. So I think that politicians who are trying to, trying to do their job, which is be responsive. They see that they're, they're picking up on that, that it's an issue that people care about and they're, they're trying to take some action accordingly. Now, every district's different. Every, every one of the house members views are slightly different and there's a ray, right? There's some, some views that have lots of differences, but, um, but it was definitely an issue that uh, became important, and then also, you know, as certain senators and representatives champion it, as Mike Moon champions the issue, the issue becomes more public, and then there's more pressure on other people to say, "What's your position on this?" Right, and that sort of coalesces a movement to have something take place, right, by people talking about it and uh, and just bringing it up. Honestly,
2: you know, you've said it's inappropriate for transgender minors to take puberty blockers or go through hormone therapy. But, you know, a number of trans kids, many who spoke during the committee hearings, you know, who have started what's known as gender affirming care, say that these treatments have made them profoundly happier. Why are they wrong?
0: Um, you know, I've heard from children who were transitioned that had uh, different viewpoints on it, too. There were, there were some that has the exact opposite, that they said that the. Um, that the hormone therapy and, and what they underwent had this irrevocable damage to them and they really regretted it. And they didn't think they were making, they were able to make the decision at the time. They felt like adults, they were taking their cues from them. But I've heard from uh, parents and children on the other side too. I And you know, um, that the house bill was the bill that was preferred, Brad Hudson's version. But I've also heard conservatives make the arguments about the justness of the grandfather clause itself, that, you know, based on the prescription, if there's a young person who's very far along in the process, now further care is care that, um, you know, if you withdrew the hormones immediately, then there could be whatever consequence. So there's some, there, there, there's some concerns I heard that argue that the grandfather clause has a just aspect to it. Um, I've, I've heard parents and children say both different things. I've tried to take that book into account. I, I've considered, um, you know, what whether or not how paternalistic the government should be in making rules. I think it is part of the legislature's purview to define a standard of care for medical practice. I think we do that for medical licensures and the licenses that are sanctioned and promulgated by the state. Um, and I think that if we're thinking about children and, you know, what long-term effects of them are and whether or not um, their, their development physiologically, cognitively, as a human being, as a whole human being, if all these things are in flux and happening with their young person, then maybe it's wise to wait until they become an adult. Now, does that, now I mean to the to another subject that is becoming a, a point of contention, does that mean I think that adults ought to have um, you know gender and sex transition? Um, I think that I think there's a distinction in how we treat it legally for sure. because children are children and because children um, have different sets of legal rights than adults too and different sets of autonomy, and because children are undergoing a process that's much less fixed than say somebody in their 20s or 30s, I think that's true. So I think there should be a legal distinction.
1: Well, I'm glad that you mentioned that. You're an excellent segue um, you, you, you are correct. You are one of the people who has told me and other reporters you are not in favor of barring what's known as gender-affirming care for adults. Um, when I posed that fact to Ben Green, who's a St. Louis resident, a, a transgender man, and, and said there are a number of Republicans that say they don't want to go after gender-affirming care for adults, this is what he had to say. Not for a second do I believe that. I think that their goal doesn't even have to do with healthcare. I I think that might be the next step. I think their end goal, which they have openly stated, is the elimination of transgender people from Missouri and from public life. Transgender Missourians just frankly don't believe people like you who say that you're not going to go after gender affirming care for adults next. Like, why are they wrong?
0: I don't want to eliminate any person. I think every person is important, and I think that the Republicans, and as we're talking about how we go forward, should be thoughtful about making sure that we are um, not cruel in our language or actions toward anybody. Um, I think that that so I think that, like I said, the legislature can and the state government can identify scope of practice and what are lawful medical treatments. We do that with a variety of things. But so I think there there's a distinction between the the uh, paternalism decision making that we have for children, in you know, what some might call child abuse, and then what you do for adults. You know, you can't smoke with your children in the car, but an adult can smoke a cigarette. You know, there are certain activities that a child can engage in because they're too dangerous, but an adult can make those decisions. But I do think there's some room there. I think there's a lot of room. I want to say this very carefully, because. Um, I always have this struggle where right? I try to come up with a general aphorism, but it doesn't apply to all situations. So I think that um, the government should mainly get out of people's lives and people should live their own lives. And I think parents should raise their own children mainly, but I think we're asking a substantive due process question about what decisions parents can make for children. And like I said, okay, smoking, there are certain surgeries and activities that are already forbidden for children. And I think transitioning. A, a child biologically falls in that category
1: do you think that attorney general andrew bailey hurt the cause of the missouri house and the missouri senate when he released emergency rules that not only went after gender affirming care for minors but effectively banned it for adults too so so do you think that that hurt the messaging it hurt the
0: cause yeah um so yeah, and i don't get hung up on those terms like causes or messaging, because I think we should be free to think about these issues carefully and about what, and, and, and I, we think we should do the thing that's, you know, sinful in politics and have nuance and think about it carefully. Um, I think Andrew Bates is a good lawyer. I think he's a good man that tries to do the right thing. Um, I think the legal distinction that I talked about is something that we should, we should recognize legally. We're having a discussion about an emerging issue emerging in the sense of our our legal cult where we are legally and culturally in, in Missouri. Okay. So um, we're having that discussion. I don't think he necessarily hurt anything. I think that legal distinction is important. Um, I think Andrew Bailey is somebody who's trying to do the right thing. I think that um, we should just carefully consider, you know, what we go forward on these policies. This is a new law and we're going to see how this law works or doesn't work or has effects over the next couple of years. And I think the legislature should be open to considering going back to that. Right. So, um, but I don't, I don't have any criticism for Andrew Bailey on his role. Um, You know, there, there are people that are harmed by transitioning that exist too. And um, if I'm going to embrace, you know, like this, my new embracement of Kantian ethics, like each person's into themselves, then that, that means some of the cases that we talked about and that you mentioned, but it also means some of the people that are harmed by the transition and what that means for them.
2: And so speaking of nuance, you know, the house versions were a lot more strict than the Senate ones that passed that had both a sunset on some of the care. So these bills wouldn't be in effect after right. four years in addition to the grandfather clause. So Do you disagree with the fact that having that nuance does help with this emerging conversation, the fact that they do have to revisit it, you know, and how many years when this would expire? I mean, thoughts on kind of the fact that it is kind of a more nuanced version of the bill versus the House.
0: Yeah, I heard uh, conservatives critical of that. And I heard the phrase it got watered down it got weakened. And it may not have been everything all of us wanted. But like I said, there's, you know, Mike Moon is one senator. There are 33 more. The um, all the other senators have the power of filibuster to stop bills in their tracks. There's a requirement to go and negotiate. And so that means sometimes there's a product that, you know, maybe the grandfather clause we don't like. OK, that's fine. Let's revisit it. Let's revisit it in four years and let's have a debate again. And I don't want to mean that to uh, re-traumatize people or hurt people. But I mean, politically, let's let's see where we are as a state and let's have that debate. And I'm wel- I'm open to do that. And I think we should do that in a thoughtful way again, a thoughtful way and not in a in a, in a careful way. But um, I'm open to do that. And I think that um, Mike Moon deserves kudos from conservatives for what he was able to accomplish because um, those bills had never got that far before in legislative history. And there are a lot of reasons why they came to the forefront, like we already mentioned. But, you know, he asserted something that was very important and very important to him. And um, And there had to be some negotiation to get it to the Senate. And so we shouldn't. And so, okay, nuance, grandfather clause. What if there's a child who's in mid-transition? What if, um, you know, there are these unknowns, there's future medical developments. Since medical technology is always evolving, since our culture is always evolving, I think we should be open to revisiting issues. Now, now it doesn't mean I'm saying I'm going to reverse my position on it. What I mean is we shouldn't be afraid to have that discussion and see where we are. That's part of our job as legislators.
1: We'll be right back after this quick break with State Representative Bill Hardwick. And we're back on Politically Speaking with State Representative Bill Hardwick. He is a Republican from Waynesville. So let's talk about a measure that did not pass, and that is an effort to make constitutional amendments more difficult to pass. The the proposal that passed out of the House in the last week of the session would have raised the threshold to enact a constitutional amendment from a simple majority to 57 percent. There were other versions that went up to 60 percent. There was a version that would have you know, you could get a majority, but it had to pass in a certain amount of congressional districts. Why didn't this issue make it past the finish line? And is it possible that this just comes back next year and this is a next year issue?
0: Uh, I think it will be a next year issue. I think it will be an ongoing issue as long as our Constitution continues to be amended. So th- this issue is not just complicated policy wise and constitutional wise. It's complicated politically because at the same time, our voters say, hey, if you have X, you know, a lot of voters that I hear from say, okay, somebody with millions of dollars, they can go amend the constitution. The Constitution's getting out of control. It's not a structural, uh, you know, structural document, a document of rights and how our government is formed. It's like a regulatory document. It almost reads like a code of regulations. And that's not what a constitution is designed to do. At the same time, there are people that feel that way. Also, if I say, hey, I'm going to make it more difficult for you to go to uh, you know to defy your elected officials defy or go around whatever, whatever phrase you want to use and amend the constitution that doesn't intuitively sell either because what at the same time there's a growing distrust of the establishment the political establishment the political class not unjustified i think i think there is a reason why people feel like um they just don't trust their government anymore so okay um so republicans you know, I think most of my Democratic colleagues opposed it altogether. Right, just kind of across the board. Republicans had different views on how to solve it, and there wasn't a general consensus of a modus modus to um, change the initiative petition process. I personally preferred the concurrent majority schemata over the raising the threshold. And just for because, our listeners,
1: yeah. so I just want to make sure I'm I'm making myself clear. That would say yes, it could be just fifty percent plus one, but it would need to pass in what. Six out of eight congressional districts, five out of eight congressional districts. I, I'm not sure the number. but
0: Yeah, there are multiple versions, but I all thought they were favorable or more favorable. Congressional district, Senate districts, House districts, and some seemed like it was too granular. The math was not able to be workable. But the idea was that, you know, the people can choose to amend the Constitution, but it can't just be rural Missouri that amends the Constitution, and it can't just be St. Louis and Kansas City and Springfield. We need a cross-section of the state. And I think that's a more favorable approach, personally. But I'll tell you, I mean, and I don't know if I should really out my like reveal myself here, but I, I voted against the very final version of the House, and my particular reason was, um, and this 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 may not seem like it sells very well either, but I think it's a true analysis. My particular reason was, if we take away the people's ability to to amend the Constitution in a way that that doesn't really work, or we take away the legislature's ability to refer a, amendments questions to the ballot then I think we disrupt the balance of power between the legislature, the executive, and the judiciary. Because if the judiciary acts in a way that the people don't like, or the legislature doesn't like, sent by the people again, or the executive branch is executing the law and administering the law in a way that we think is no good either, then the remedy, kind of an ultimate remedy, but a remedy that's important, is that we go back to the people and the voters vote. And they say, well, the judiciary is getting it wrong or we don't like their interpretation of the Constitution and ought to say this, make it more clear or change it, or the governor's getting it wrong. These, these agencies are getting it wrong. And so that vehicle to send things back to the ballot is, is, a, is a part of the check. And it's also part of the, that the legislature can refer that. It's a check on the legislature. It's a legislature ability to have a check on the judiciary, the executive branch. So I, I was fearful of that, right? I'm fearful of having a um, having one branch of power, one branch of government, that doesn't have the ability to have checks and balances on the other branches. Just as much as I think the court should check us, I think we should have the ability to check the court. And the referendum and initiative petition process are part of that, I think. So that's one reason why I uh, I couldn't support the last reason in, in kind of my analysis. But I think we'll come back because the question of how we mend the Constitution is an important question. It shouldn't be a 5,000 page document, right? It should be a document like more similar to the federal constitution of structure and rights and then we have a political process for enacting statutes and then we have this more sort of granular um, you know bureaucratic process for the promulgation of details and regulations and that's a better way to have a functional government i think than just a constitution that is a regulatory book essentially
1: so i've talked to a lot of republicans about this global issue of making it more difficult to amend the constitution i've not found a single one who believes that any form of this proposal will pass because this has to be approved by voters. There's like n- right. no confidence whatsoever that this is going to pass for a couple of reasons. Number one, the opposition messaging could just be, "Look, the legislature is trying to take away your ability to, uh, you know, change government." And number two, yeah. to more cynically, there are a lot of interest groups that use the initiative petition process that still want to use it, and they sure. will have millions of dollars at their disposal if this has no chance of actually passing to the ballot, why put any energy toward this?
0: Well, I think that's right. We should start with the end product and kind of work backwards, right? We should start with, OK, what's the, what exactly is the change and what exactly is the ballot wording? And when I go back to Rotary Club or the VFW or I go to church or I go to the county fair and somebody asks me about this ballot measure, because that's what state representatives do in the summer on election year. I go to fairs and people walk up and they ask me about things on the ballot and people on the ballot. And it's just, it's part of our job, right? They just go, Hey, what's up with this? Can you explain it to me? And we do this um, like hundreds and hundreds of times in July or in October, depending on, you know, whichever. Okay. So we should think about that. Let's craft. If, if we think that's too easy to change the constitution, the constitution is becoming a thing that's, that's almost non-functional Missouri. If we really think that, okay, then let's craft a change that when we go back and talk to the folks in our districts, that they understand that we're not trying to take their power away from them, that we're we doing is sensible and that we don't blush when we're explaining it. I think it's where we should start. And let's work on ballot language that's clear and accurate and concise and does the thing that we think that we need to do. That's also why, it's one of the reasons why I think just raising the threshold to 57% or 60% might be a non-starter. It might be something that doesn't pass. But if we have a we have a way of getting after the you know the problem of our constitution becoming something unmanageable, then maybe something where we say, okay, let's just have a cross section of the state. 50, percent plus one's okay, but we need some buy-in from southwest Missouri, southeast Missouri, from North Missouri, from St. Louis and Kansas City. And it's hard to change the constitution, but if that's what the people want across the state, they can do it. Um, but I get that. I get your point. And I made the point. I guess this is the episode of Nuance. I made the point that. The Republicans weren't in the majority of the legislature in the 1990s. And back in those days, they loved the initiative petition process.
1: Loved the initiative and, petition process yeah. when Jay Nixon was governor. As well, yeah, that's right. so let's that's right. let, we don't have to go that back that far. <laughs> you, well, you know? it seems like
0: an eternity ago,
1: but that's actually a good. Yeah, point. yeah, I know. Believe it or not, people, we did have a Democratic governor seven years ago,
2: You know, House Speaker Dean Plocker explicitly linked efforts to make constitutional amendments more difficult to pass with legalizing abortion, and we have a clip of that that Jason's going to play.
0: We, as a, as a Republican Party, have delivered conservative legislation, and that legislation stands up for life in Missouri. We are pro life and if the senate fails to take action on ip reform i think the senate it should be held accountable for allowing abortion to return to missouri
2: now house minority leader crystal Quaid said kind of he was you know saying the quiet part out loud what do you make of the speaker's comments
0: uh, i think what speaker plocker said is is basically accurate that um that there'll be uh, there'll be questions before the voters most likely on the issue of abortion and um that initiative petition reform if people don't want that question to change the Constitution, to make abortion legal in Missouri again, you know, that's one way to um, to protect against that. But I also think that um, that the people always get a, some way or the other, people always get a say in what they want, whether that's through electing a different representative, electing a different governor or amending the Constitution. So, um, there, you know, there were um, Roy Blunt used to say that the people are never wrong. The voters are never wrong. And if you think that um, that there's you don't know, like the direction that the public's going or that there's a there's a meme that's kind of taking off, then it's your job as a statesman to make the best case to them about what you think is right and inform them with what you think they don't know. And if it's a philosophical case, like on the issue of abortion, make your best philosophical case. And that's your job. And then the voters get to make up their mind. And that's how politics and government ought to work. You stand for what you believe in. You, uh, you say what you think. You have convictions. You put them out there. And then you trust people to reject it or accept it, um, based you know, based on their. Um, you just trust them to do that.
2: Do you think that a measure legalizing abortion could pass in Missouri, especially if it's written a way that could appeal to Republican voters?
0: Yeah, but I think it could pass. That's true. It, it, it depends. The ballot language is very, very important because a lot of people walk in, they see fifty words, and it's kind of how it's worded, right? What that what that connotes, what the implications of those words are. But I also think a differently worded ballot measure could fail or a ballot measure that could enshrine the right to life in the Constitution could also pass, depending on how it's worded. We talk often about the disparity in polling on the issue of abortion, that there's a majority of people, even Missouri and nationally, that think there should be some restrictions on abortion, um, late term abortion on demand, that sort of thing. But then that kind of inverts itself when you talk about things like rape, uh, life of the mother. Um, incest um, very early in the pregnancy, so there's 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 variance in what people's views are. Okay, so I'm somebody who's pro-life. I think that um, a human being has this inherent worth in life, and we should protect that. I think we should we protect the life of the mother too. But I think that they're two people, right, that we should respect. That's my viewpoint, and um, we all have different kinds of viewpoints. Let's not be afraid of that discussion, like any other discussion. Let's um, have a real discussion about it, and um, and let's and let's put it to the voter. You know, I don't want to necessarily want on the ballot, but there could be another ballot measure that says let's have life in the constitution, and if that's on the if that's on the the, the ballot, then we should also trust the voters on that issue.
1: So let's move to twenty twenty four. It's only it's it's not that far away, six months away, I think. What what is time? <laughs> So, 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 yeah, we're 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 really excited for this, aren't we, Sarah? Um, oh,
2: yeah, i I mean, I've already, you know, writing my stories now. It's already, you know, it's always election season. Who are we it's kidding?
1: always election season because now there are two, possibly three, people running for governor on the Republican side. That is Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft, Lieutenant Governor Mike Kehoe, and possibly uh, Senator Bill Eigel. Uh, and, and we talked before the show, you're you're completely neutral in this race, which is makes this – yeah, continue.
0: I haven't endorsed anyone yet. So that, yet.
1: that makes this question uh, pretty pertinent. How do you think that that race is stacking
0: up? So now I have to consider whether I give you like a really um, like um, contrite political answer or I give you like an interesting actual analysis.
2: You, you know you're going to pick me. You always do. I guess I will do. Okay.
0: So I think that um, – honestly, I think any one of them could theoretically win. And there's a way in which each of them appealed to different parts of the electorate that could win. And I think part of that is the ability to scale your name, ID, and message. But the cacophony of ads and activation and messaging hasn't occurred yet for any of them. And so my honest analysis is that race is yet to be determined. But there's a way in which that um, you know um, different factions of the Republican Party could be split, and any one of them could possibly win. There's also issues that have yet to be emerge There's also a presidential race in 2024, shaping up to be Donald Trump versus Ron DeSantis and maybe some other people. Um, Seems like most likely Joe Biden in the ballot, maybe not, right? And there are new things that haven't happened in the political cycle that will dominate the political discussion then. And how those candidates answer those questions in a way that resonates with their primary voters will determine the election in addition to their ability to express themselves, not just in traditional media, right? Not just in um, radio ads and on television, But also the way that messaging has changed, the way that getting information out to hundreds of thousands of people, um, you know, very little cost has changed too. And candidates have to recognize that. So I actually think that any one of them could theoretically win. And I think that the decision points in the the campaign battle, so to speak, or the the campaign have yet to occur and they're unknown. And and it's going to be a test of the candidate, their actual ability to know the mind of voters and to lead on issues. That's what's going to happen too. Issues will come up that we don't know about. And they will be the issues of 2024. And those candidates will have to decide what they think about them and where they want to go for to Missouri. And the voters will respond to how they react, how, how what they put out there, unknown to them, right? What, and then we'll find their composition as people. And that'll determine who the nominee is for governor, I think.
2: How do Republicans prevent this race from becoming so nasty that it turns off voters and allow someone like House Minority Leader Crystal Quay to become governor? She's, you know, thinking about a run right now.
0: I think negative campaigning is a, like the prisoner's dilemma, right? Like, you're like, well, if I don't do it, they'll do it. And if they do it, they'll hurt me. And then people, then my voters will be suppressed and not turn out. And so they'll be successful. So they all feel the obligation to attack people uh, either on their, their record or personally or whatever. And I think that's almost like a truism in politics right now. I think there is an effectiveness to it, but I also think everybody decries it. And I and if you talk to people, like if you're if you're listening to voters... They go, man, I, I can't stand their personal attacks. And I think there is a change with Donald Trump because Donald Trump um, underwent so much, you know, whatever word you want to use, criticism about his personal life, about his background, about his business dealings, about his marriage, about whatever. And, um, and that really turned off a lot of Republican voters because they were like, well, he's, you know, he's fighting for our causes, right, for, you know, for working folks, for blue collar folks, for, you know, America, America, whatever you know, pick, pick your issue there that resonated with people. So I think that politics is changing and I think that candidates should be sensitive to that, but it's all, the responsibility is always on the candidate for what they will and won't do and what's too low or what's, you know, beneath their honor. Now, of course, it's hard. It's easy to say that in the abstract, it's hard when it's June or July and you're two points down, you know? So um, I just think the candidates will have to, to figure out what the line is for them and how they want to win the race. But I've always found that um, there's, you know, consultants have like this mechanics to elections, right? Here's piece one, here's piece two, here's buzzwords, here's whatever. But I think there's kind of like some soul to politics too. Like you put your you put something out there and people reciprocate it and they kind of figure out what you're like, honestly. You can't really disguise who you are. Like you be yourself and people respond and reciprocate or they don't. So there's kind of like an energy to campaigning. And, it, and if you really want to be successful, you do that, right? Like you... You be something that people kind of pick up on; it resonates with them, and um, they also say people always remember how you make them feel, even if you won, right? So, like, do you make them feel uplifted? Do you make people feel positive? Do you make people feel hopeful? Like, there's going to be a good future for Missouri, or do you make them feel like this politics is miserable, right? And, and it's it's corrupt, it's dirty, nobody wants to be involved in it, and every single candidate has to decide, you know, where they want to be in the, in that process. But you know, I'd recommend to them. Than an uplifting, hopeful future message, and saying, "Here's how I'm going to make your life better, and here's what I stand for, and here's why um, you know I'm going to be the best governor for every single person in the state." Then that's what the candidate should focus on, and I, and I hope that they'll be more successful, and I hope that they'll, they'll tend that way.
1: Politically speaking, is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is a part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. You can read all of our coverage at STLPR.org. And Representative, how could people find you on the internet where you want to be found?
0: I'm on uh, what's called MySpace on Han Solo 84, and you can look me up. So
1: until next time, so long.
2: smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio.